do that. Lord, we uh, come before you humbly. We, we need your help right now. Um, we need your help because our hearts are uh, in various stages and levels of disorder and chaos. And we have many thoughts uh, in our minds and in our hearts, Lord, concerns and cares. And Lord, we just ask that you would um, take those, that you would work in those. Um, Lord, we pray that your word would um, open up our mind, that it would do a work that only your word can do uh, in our hearts, and that you would give us um, conviction and you would give us instruction, that you would help me be faithful to your word as we open it this morning, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. All right, well, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew 14. Matthew 14, we're in our, I don't know, 226th week of this series we're in called The God Who Redeems. And uh, this is stories of God restoring his people for his glory. So what we've been doing is just going through some of the classic stories of the Bible and um, trying to understand if we've been understanding them correctly. And what I mean by that is by not changing the meaning of them, but actually looking to see who the actual hero of the stories are, which according to the Bible is always God. So sometimes we, uh, man, sometimes we raise up these men and these women in these stories, and we put them on these pedestals, but really the only one that deserves to be on the pedestal is of course God. So Matthew 14, we're going to be looking at the story of Peter this morning. The nature in life of a Christian, okay, is that we struggle as we think about Peter and as we get into this story, the nature in life of a Christian is that we struggle to believe God. We doubt that God is who God says he is. And the result of that is fear and varying degrees of faithful and faithlessness. And you know what else? As we get into this, it's okay to admit that the struggle is real. All right? I should just hear an all right after I say all right. Yeah. Like, it's okay to admit that the struggle is real. Uh, a guy named Eric Mason, Pastor Eric Mason from, from Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia, he said this. He said, we're all a mess in process. All right? Yeah, and that is, that's a big amen right there for us. And what you need to know is that, first off, I believe that about myself. Okay? A mess in process. I am an imperfect pastor that needs equal quantities of grace as everyone else, as all of you in this room. All right? I mean, if this pulpit ever becomes some untouchable Captain America shield of manufactured togetherness, all right, then we'll spend a Sunday doing some pulpit burning. And we can because it's wood. And it's going to bum out Casey Cook because he lovingly built this thing. But that's what we're going to have to do. Substance, it's a safe place. It's a safe place to confess our struggles with fear and with doubt and with unbelief. So that we can cry out to the Lord, right? Like we were just doing as we were singing. I mean, those are songs that we're crying out to the Lord to help relieve us of the agonizing sins that keep turning in the flesh of our hearts like knives. It's a safe place to do that. So this morning we're going to read a story of the Apostle Peter, probably my favorite character in all of Scripture, who wears all the struggles on his sleeve, man. He's the guy that's just always doing the wrong thing. He's the guy who almost always blurts out the wrong thing at the wrong time. He gets cocky all the time, disagrees with Jesus, makes just colossal blunder after blunder. But ironically, and at the same time, he also happens to be the guy that God chose to build the church on that we are a part of and sitting in right now. 
So Peter, as we look, and if you look into the story of his life, man, he had a really unsteady faith in his formative years with Jesus and even after. And yet, all of his faithless blunders never forfeited the role God had placed him in. All right? God remained faithful to Peter like he remains faithful to us in our own foolishness and with our own fears and with our own doubts and with our own faithlessness. So in Matthew chapter 14, some of the previous verses, this is kind of the build up to where we're going this morning. Jesus had just finished preaching what essentially was this massive conference for 5,000 men. And that didn't even include women and children. So this thing was big, right? So picture like this arena sized gig that had everything going. You had Jesus up there preaching. You had all these people spread out. The only thing that it lacked was that nobody told any food vendors to come in. All right. So not only does Jesus preach, but at the end of it, he says, you know, man, boys, we, we got to handle some catering here. We got to bring in some food. And he did it by miraculously providing food for everyone from five loaves of bread and two fish. And it's not like it was just like, you know, it wasn't like they just passed around the five loaves and everybody got like a micro crumb of that five loaves. It says that everyone ate and everyone was satisfied. So God created enough food for everybody to be filled, for everybody to be satisfied. I mean, this wasn't some David Blaine, Harry Houdini magic trick, right? This was the power of Jesus as God that had the power of creation and multiplication. When God wants to do something, he does something. He does whatever he wants to do, right? What about this morning? First day of spring, yo. I mean, we wake up and it's snowing, right? I mean, what do you do with that? Well, well, we don't do anything with that, actually. We have no power to do anything with that, except for to say, oh, so let me understand this, God. You really don't really care what our calendar says, do you? You know, and what that reminds us of is that God is in complete control. And not like complete control where he's the old schoolmaster saying like, I'm going to hammer you when I want to hammer you but in complete and gracious and caring and loving control. He gives us another day of snow. What the heck? You know? Well, let's pick up in verse 22. Chapter 14, verse 22. And it says this. Immediately, and remember, this is after the big miracle, feeding the 5,000. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Well, he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against him. Let's stop right there. So after Jesus dismisses the crowds, he tells his boys to get in the boat and go to the other side so that he could hike up the mountain for some alone time to pray. So even In the position that Jesus was in, it kind of takes us back to last week. He found the time to get alone and go quiet before the Father to refresh and to rebuild. And by the time he's finished praying, it's late. The boatman, it is long gone, and it happened to get caught up in some rough waters. Now, you guys got to remember, man, this is years before the advent of wave runners, all right? So at 3 a.m., which is the fourth watch of the night, Jesus literally steps into the water and walks out to the disciples. Now remember, this wasn't Jesus' first miracle. 
This wasn't his first rodeo, right? He had just finished creating a literal banquet out of a number five value meal. All right? So he takes a supernatural stroll on the surface of the water and provides even further evidence as we get into the text, further evidence that he is someone who rules over the elements, not the other way around. When he decides to do something, he does it and it happens. When he decides to let it snow on the first day of spring, snow, right? And we don't want to miss the significance of that kind of power when we think of who God is. We don't want to miss the significance of that kind of power of God that gets illustrated and becomes evidenced even in our own life. The disciples are in the boat, okay? The waters are choppy. They're completely at the mercy of the waves while Jesus walks over the waves. He is not met with the kind of restrictions that we are faced with as human beings, is he? A miracle for us, man, is when we get to work on time with matching socks and no milk stains on the front of our shirt. That's a miracle for us. Not super impressive. Verse 26. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. So Jesus approaches the disciples, and they go into just absolute panic. And I kind of like this part, because you can only imagine what, you know, the looks, and everybody, you know, these full, fully grown men, you know, with the beards and the whole thing, like just going into this panic. But call me crazy, right? But seeing a guy walk on water feels like something to panic about, right? I mean, it feels like the start of a scary movie. I don't know. You know, you know what I think would have been amazing? And this is just to the side, so forgive me for this. If Jesus would have been wearing a GoPro on his head as he sort of approached the disciples and documented as they started freaking out, just to see the looks on their face. If we could have a picture of that, I would have loved to have had a picture of that. I'm afraid to look at my wife right now after I just said that. So I love that you have all these rough and tough men crying out in fear, terrified, immediately forgetting what had just happened the day before. Forgetting that Jesus was the one who had fed them and sent them across the water. But Jesus immediately calms their fears and he says this. He says this significant line for us this morning. He says, take heart, it is I. He didn't say take heart, this is Jesus son of Joseph and Mary. He says, take heart, it is I. They knew who I was. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. He calms their fears by his word. It was his word that calmed their fears. But how often is our view of God like the disciples? I mean, we just think that God wants to scare us sometimes, don't we? We think he wants to scare us when in reality he's out to secure us. We think he's coming to punish, but he's actually coming to preserve us. We think because we're in a place of unsettledness and uncertainty that he's abandoned us. When the truth is that it's precisely those moments he uses to banish our fears and build our faith. I mean, how foolish are we to think 
that somehow God is not for his people. As if he wavers. As if he has good days and bad days. As if he wakes up angry. As if he wakes up at all. He's God. Verse 28. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. So Peter, Peter answers. Peter answers, unsure if it's really the Lord, doubting it might be Jesus. Even after he answers them with the phrase, it is I. There's still a little bit of doubt there. But Peter answers and says, Lord, if it's you, if I can be sure that it's you, if this is your word, then command me to come out to you on the water. So there's a part of Peter here, as we see how he engages with Jesus, that believes that if it's really Jesus walking on the water, then Jesus is also powerful enough to give him the ability to walk on it with him, right? So Jesus invites him to come, and Peter steps out. He steps out of the boat onto the water. I mean, look, I don't, I don't know what the mood in the boat is at that time, right? But things are moving fast. Right? One minute, you have a bunch of grown men screaming in terror. The next minute, you have Peter going, hey, Jesus, how about a quick lesson in water levitation, right? Let me just jump out here, and I will hang with you. The problem in all of this, the problem with the scenario of even Peter asking Jesus to command him to come out is that there's still a storm. There's still stuff going on. There's still water beating against the boat. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out and said, Lord, Save me. Let's stop right there for a second. What's interesting is that Jesus doesn't calm the waters. Isn't that interesting? He calls Peter out into the unsteady waters. He doesn't calm the waters before he asks Peter to step out into them. Meaning, he was stepping out into a storm and it makes him afraid because there's Jesus right over there. But there's waves right over here. And it kind of reminds me of my grandpa when he when I was learning how to swim and he used to stand in the water, right? He used to stand in the pool and he used to tell me to jump. And he would always say, hey, don't sweat it, kiddo, because I'm going to catch you. And it's not like I didn't see grandpa like standing there, all right? It's that I saw the water in between me and grandpa. That was the deal. I was afraid that the water would pull me under faster than he could pull me out if he failed to catch me. It's not that we can't see those waves when God asks us to have faith and believe him. It's just that we get so fixated on the waves that we forget who's already standing on them. You guys tracking with me on that? Remember, the reason Peter was successfully wakeboarding on his bare feet was because Jesus called him out. But his fear of the storm caused him to start sinking in it. He believed it was too powerful. And you know what? It was. The storm was too powerful. It was too powerful for Peter. But Peter, he wasn't being supported by his stamina. 
or his incredible balance, he was being supported by Jesus. But he didn't remember that until he started sinking and cried out, Lord, save me. But you know what's interesting is that Peter, we give Peter a bad rap in this. You know, if you've heard this sermon preached, if you've heard this passage preached before, Peter did have faith, didn't he? I mean, we're real hard on this dude for a lot of things, aren't we? We're real hard on Peter for sinking in the storm, even though there was a moment when homeboy is like on top of the water, right? But we give him no credit for even stepping out, for even saying, Jesus, command me to come out and I'll obey and I'll step out. And let me propose this thought. Would it have been better for Peter to make it all the way to Jesus or to start sinking and need Jesus to save him? Think about that question. Would it have been better for Peter to make it all the way to Jesus or start sinking and need Jesus to save him? Because the question I want to know is, what did Jesus have planned for Peter in that moment? What did Jesus have planned for Peter in that moment? We'll revisit that in a few minutes. Verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out his hand. So there's Peter sinking in the water. Jesus immediately reaches out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So Jesus immediately reaches down, pulls Peter up the minute he cried out to be saved. And guys, this is, this is the picture of the gospel for us in this passage. This is a picture of the good news, the saving news of Jesus Christ. It was only after Peter saw his need to be saved that God reached down and saved him. Peter was always going to drown. You guys get that? Peter was always going to drown. Jesus was always going to save him. Jesus asks, why so little faith, Peter? Why did you doubt? Which is an interesting question, isn't it? It's an interesting question for Jesus to ask Peter, especially since it feels like he asked it right as Peter's taking all these gulps of, of salt water, you know? But Jesus doesn't get angry with Peter. Notice that. Jesus doesn't get angry with Peter and do what my sister used to do in the pool, which was to keep dunking my head underwater until, like, I got that, like, you know, hey, how do you feel about me now? You know, what about that last thing you said? Like, he's not doing that to Peter. He's not angry. He's not getting back at him. He's not seeking vindication against Peter's doubt and his fear and his worry and his struggle in that. The picture here, listen to me, the picture here is one of Jesus carrying the boy with the wounded pride in his arms back to the boat. That's the picture. Pull him out. Carry him back to the boat. What's amazing is how the disciples respond to this. Verse 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. If you go to Mark's gospel, what it says about this account is that they were utterly astounded. They were utterly astounded because what Mark says is that They didn't understand that thing, that miracle that had happened with the loaves and that their hearts had become hardened because of it. And what that means is when we have hardened hearts is it means we don't believe. 
It means we're mired in unbelief. It means we're not receiving who God is. It means we're refusing to acknowledge the truth about who God is. But what it shows here is that at some point that changed and it turned into astonishment and then worship. And it kind of helps us understand, doesn't it? That there's something about those two things being connected. Astonishment and worship. Being in awe of God and having our only response on the heels of that astonishment and that awe of God being that we have to worship Him. That's what we attempt to do on Sundays so that we live lives on Mondays that are before the face of God. They're living before the throne of God above. To where we can look at our lives and our problems and our fears and our doubts, they pale in comparison to God's overwhelming nature over those things. But we've lost that awe, haven't we? We've reduced God. We've reduced Him to something much smaller. We've reduced God to sitting in one of these wonderfully padded chairs that we provide for you. That's what we've kind of done to God in our culture, in our church culture. We've made him somebody like us. He's not like us. Thank God. Astonishment and worship. That was the disciples' response after Jesus lovingly brings Peter back to the boat. The wind ceases, the storm subsides, and the disciples worship. What an amazing story, isn't it? And what I like about it is that it tells us some things about who God is. And it tells us some things about how he responds to us in our faithlessness, in our fears, and in our foolishness. Three things. Three ways about who God is and how he responds to those things. Number one. God sends you through fearful waters to calm your fears. God sends you purposefully through fearful waters to calm your fears. So this is what happens. Let's do a little recap here, all right? Jesus sent the disciples out to sea without him. You notice how he did that? Go. I'm hiking up the mountain. I'm going to pray. He sends the disciples out to sea without him, knowing they would encounter a storm. I mean, does that dawn on us that Jesus was sending them to experience something that he knew they were going to experience. So he knew they would encounter a storm. He knew they would see him as this otherworldly, ghostly figure. He knew he would save Peter from the storm. He knew he would calm the storm. He knew he would remind them that they didn't have anything to fear because he was God. And they'd been shown this before. In fact, they'd shown this the day before. And they would need to be shown again. And that's us, isn't it? Because we're fearful people. Now, I'll just speak for myself. I'm a fearful people person. I'm a fearful person. We doubt so easily, don't we? We lose our trust in God. We lose our hope in God so easily. But the encouraging thing is that none of this is unknown. None of this is unknown by God. None of it was unknown. All of it was put into place by God, for God. I think we should not be so quick to try and calm the waters 
and get back to the shores of our lives. Jesus could have calmed the waters. He could have walked to the boat. He could have had a little nice row, row, row your boat with his boys on the way back to shore. But he didn't. He didn't. He waited for the storm. He saved Peter. He calmed the storm. Their worry was transformed to worship. And that is what God is like. He puts you in a place of uncertainty to make you less certain about your abilities. He puts you in a place of unrest so that you can be rescued again. So God sends you through fearful waters to calm your fears too. God's character is not changed by your doubts. God's character is not changed by your doubts. Did Peter's doubts prevent Jesus from acting out of his kindness and goodness? Did Jesus have to save Peter? Did did Jesus have to save Peter? Grassy? No. The one time I wanted her to speak to me and she like doesn't have a word for me. Was he obligated to save Peter? No. He saved Peter because he had already chosen Peter to be his disciple and to build his church on him. Our doubts can't change what God already has purposed for us. God is still going to reach down to you in your doubts. I mean, do some of you think you've gone too far? Do some of you think that your doubt meter is just, man, it's hit the red so many times that there's no yanking that thing back? Do you feel like you've doubted God one time too many? I mean, don't worry, man. This was one of many for our boy Pete. I mean, he's not even close to the end of his seasons of doubt and fear with the Lord. I mean, you think, this is my question, you think your doubt is that strong and that powerful? We think our doubts are that capable? You think doubting God's character somehow has the power to change it? I mean, that's like standing underneath Niagara Falls worried that your opinion might make the water stop. It's ridiculousness. It's foolishness. God's character is not changed by your doubts. Praise God. Praise God. Three, God reveals his faithfulness in our foolishness. Isn't that amazing? Like all the foolish things you've done, all the idiotic things I'm done. Do you think God flinches when those things happen with us? He doesn't. If the sea had been tranquil, all right, follow me on this. There would have been no occasion for Jesus to do what he did. Because see, the big thing that people tend to center on when they tell this story is that Peter took his eyes off Jesus. He saw the wind. He lost faith and he started sinking, thinking it was Peter's lack of faith that caused him to drown. Okay. The more important point here is not that Peter sunk. All right. Let me say that again. The important point for us today is not that Peter sunk. Is it sank? Help me. That's not the important point. That's the point. The important point is that Jesus reached down and saved him. That's it right there. Why? Because Jesus already knew Peter was going 
to sink. He already knew the outcome of Peter's doubts and fears. Jesus sent Peter out to sea so he could save a drowning man. He did it in order to show Peter that he was God and that his faithfulness was not dependent on Peter's faithlessness. Isn't that phenomenal? That has to be the most hopeful thing you've heard all week. So that's how we answer the question I posed earlier. What would have been better? For Peter to have made it across the water to Jesus or to be saved by drowning from Jesus? The former, it would have shown a great and an unwavering faith. That's not a bad thing. But it also may have plunged Peter into arrogance. And if you know anything about Peter, that's not a stretch. (laughs) Not a stretch at all, right? But when Peter's doubts and fears overwhelmed him and he started sinking, he got to experience the saving arms of Jesus. What do you think was the more helpful experience for Peter later when he started preaching the gospel and he started suffering persecution? That he made it across the water or that he was saved from the water? In fact, a couple chapters later, when you get to Matthew 16, Jesus poses the questions to his disciples. He said, who do you say that I am? Peter comes up with the answer. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Was that informed by the memory he had of God saving him? It may have been. If some of you were honest... You would look me in the eyes this morning if we could get together after the service and sit here, and we can. If some of you were honest, you would look me in the eyes and say, Ronnie, my faith is so weak. I don't think I would have even gotten out of the boat. I have so many doubts. I have so many fears. And yet, here you are. You're here. You came here. You came to a place where you knew you would hear God's voice telling you to return, to come to him. And because you're too weak to stand this morning, he's going to save you and he's going to bring you home. Because that's his intention for you. His intention toward you is the same intention he had towards Peter. It's the same intention he had towards the disciples. It is I Don't be afraid. That's the message for us this morning in our fear and in our doubt. Because what God wants from us is our worship. He wants us to rejoice again, like we saw with the disciples. God doesn't condemn our doubts. He comforts us in them. Now, it's true. Hebrews 11. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So this isn't just a back out of ever having faith because God is taking control and taking care of us in our faithlessness. But for those who have put their faith in Jesus, like Peter had, God will preserve and he will surround us. He will surround you. He will surround me in the rush of great waters. Now that passage that we read together earlier, 
You are my hiding place in the rush of great waters. You will surround me. You will preserve me. This is God coming to us saying, have no fear. It is me. It is I. And when we have those fears and when we have those doubts, he has his arm here to pick us up and lift us out and carry us back to our lives. The psalmist in Psalm 69 said, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. That's some of the imagery of what Peter experienced. And then in Psalm 27, we read this about who God is. About the picture that we saw of Jesus reaching out for Peter. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Because we're afraid. Do you, I mean, you guys get that? you guys get what was going on with Peter? We use words like fear and we use words like doubt. And it's all true. But Peter was afraid. I'm afraid. I want Jesus to reach down. I want him to lift me up. Because I can't. I can't keep my head above the water. And I, and I can't just have him lift me out and then let go. He has to do the whole thing. He has to lift me up, carry me over, get in the boat. And you know what? He needs to stay in the boat with me and drive that ship. Because he ain't my co-pilot. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. That is the hope. That is the hope of those who've put their trust in him. That is the message of the gospel that we preach and preach and preach here week after week. And it's something that immediately saves us, and then it's something that continues to sustain us. So let's bow our heads. Let's pray that the Lord would save us and continue to sustain us. Lord, thank you for such a great and encouraging hope as we read about how you dealt with Peter. Just a mess of a guy. A guy that reminds us of ourselves and our insufficiencies and our fears and our doubts. Lord, remind us that everything we're going through, you are allowing to happen so that we can have a moment in our lives where we look up to you and we're reminded that all of our help has to come from you. Lord, I pray that you would sustain us even in our fears today, even in our doubts, even in those things, in those times, in those areas, in those crushing blows that we experience, that some of us are experiencing right now. Lord, we just want you to lift us out of that stormy sea and carry us and be with us. And you've promised that you will do that if we just call out to you. So, Lord, we call out to you in our fatigue. We call out to you in our worry. And we say, Lord, please save us. And you say, it is I. Don't be afraid. So, Lord, assure us of your salvation this morning as we sing together. 
one more time as we're reminded of your saving grace, as we're reminded of your mercy, as you're reminded of the burdens that you pull from us, of the burdens that you relieve us of because that's the work that you did on the cross. Lord, give us a great strength. Give us a great faith that is being refined through the stormy seasons of our doubts and our worries and our fears. Lord, I pray for anybody out there, Lord, that is reaching up, that can look at you right now and say, Lord, I need to be saved. I've been leaning into my own self-sufficiency for too long. I'm somebody that has believed that they could walk on water, and I found that life has told me otherwise. Lord, I pray that you would do a work as they come to you and they ask for forgiveness and they believe the good news that Jesus is the one and the only one that saves sinners. Lord, we pray that you would put your blessing on us as we sing and as we go today, we pray. All God's people said, amen.